<laughs> Tyler grew up with her mom in a wax cheese house. Lyrics for Lunch, the show where we wonder, do you think anyone else is doing this exact same thing, this exact same moment? I hope so. Or else what are we fighting for? Bam! <laughs> Nailed it! That's what it is, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know how accurate we were, but yeah, close pretty, enough. Close, close, within the margin of Pretty edit. damn close. Right. So who are you? What is <laughs> yeah. this? What's going on here? This is Lindsay Tucker. I'm here, as always, to talk to you about music. And sometimes movies. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I am a songwriter and movie writer and host of this show. And it's a show that's kind of like you're wrong about, but for songs. And we try to bust some myths of famous songs or forgotten songs or songs that we all remember incorrectly or songs that we give or artists that we give credit to that we shouldn't give credit to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how's, it, how's it shaking, Lindsay? Like a Polaroid picture? It's shaken just like a Polaroid picture. Which you shouldn't do. Myth busted. Which means I'm gooing all over the place. <laughs> well, we know what the <laughs> pull quote for the episode's going to be today. <laughs> oh my gosh. So last time the pull quote was like, I had sex, right? Yeah. And I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> but there was another one that was really good. I know. I was, I was, I was very torn. <laughs> So you know what I'm talking about. I, I don't know what specifically it was, but it was... I know. I can't remember it either. There was something where I was like, oh, damn it. Yeah, it was a close call. I should I should tell you that when I edit... I should tell you. I should tell you. That's not a real song. You're just making... That it. is. It's from Rent. I've never seen Rent. <laughs> um, that when I edit the episodes... I like do a constant like like change and refresh of the pull quote at the beginning because it just progressively keeps getting better, gets better and weirder. <laughs> um, yes. So today we're going to be talking about if you couldn't get it from our amazing intro, amazing the love theme from Armageddon, Aerosmith's "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing." But before we do that, we have a little bit of mailbag um, from listener Amanda. Amanda is writing in about our Grime episode. The subject is writing to Grime. Hey guys, all the way back in August, I decided that I'm tired of being out of shape and I'm going to start running. I signed up for a 10K this weekend, figuring how hard can it be? I have six weeks to train. Turns out it's pretty hard. <laughs> oh, Amanda. <laughs> I listened to your episode about Grime this week and Sonia said Grime was great to run to. She's right. I ran 6.5 miles this morning with Jamie in my ear, and it was perfect. Next week, I'm running a half marathon, and I'm definitely downloading a longer grime playlist. Thanks. Glad to hear that our grime episode has had positive repercussions for our listeners. And there's a follow-up, you say? That's not all. Amanda wrote to us and sent us a picture, which we would love to post on our socials if that's cool with her. I completed my half marathon today with a grime soundtrack. Thanks to Sonia for the tip. Serious by Jimmy might be my current favorite and the song playing as I cross the finish line. Yeah, Serious is is one of the ones that has stuck with me as well. I, I, I like that quite a bit. 
so that's all the mailbag this fits the mailbag thank you very much for writing in amanda and if you want to talk to us about your favorite episodes or a song that you think we should do or a song that particularly blew your mind where can people do that Lindsay? you can email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com or send us a shout out on twitter at lyricsforlunch and or instagram and or instagram at lyricsforlunch so tonight what the fuck what's what's going on so tonight we are talking about I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which is the theme song from the 1998 film Armageddon, directed by Michael Bay. See you next week, everyone. I was just giving you a pause in case you had any Michael Bay comments, but oh, you I don't, have, so I will move I on. Have sa- I have a lot of Michael <laughs> Bay comments. I didn't realize that this was my opening. What would you like to know? Mm, maybe nothing. Great. Michael Bay is in Armageddon. I know. He plays one of the scientists. Uh, he does. Uh, the Power Ballad featured a 52-piece orchestra. Oh, no, really? Yeah. I can't was... even, when I think of it, I can't even hear the orchestra. Yeah, me either, but we'll listen to it. Okay. It was number one in the U.S. for four weeks in September of 1998, becoming one of the most popular songs of the year. It is the band's only number one single in their what? five decades-long career. Okay. Wait. And spoilers, they didn't even write it. I knew this. This I knew. Not not as mind blowing as this is this was the band's number only. Okay. Number okay. <laughs> Go back to your reaction for that. What? Ah It um, is true. Okay. That's that seems a little crazy to me. It seems a little crazy to me that, that they've only had that number one hit, but I also fucking hate Aerosmith. We know. I could spend my life in this sweet surrender. I could stay lost in this moment forever. Every moment spent with you is a moment I treasure.
just gonna pivot right here and ask you <laughs> what do you remember about Armageddon? Okay, so this is how much time you got? I got all night. Uh okay. Armageddon is a Disney movie. It's a it's I think it's a like a Buena Vista Pictures movie and armageddon was famous at the time for being one of two massive asteroid movies that mm-hmm. uh that came out within this the same window the other being deep impact and so the conventional wisdom was that uh it was just like two different writers that had like the a similar idea based on like i guess a news report from a couple years previous but it also turns out that the writers of deep impact pitched disney their movie disney was like thanks but no thanks and then made their own asteroid movie afterwards what are you doing why are you making me this face too much what what is too much <laughs> it's fine um so D- disney who which has a kind of a history of yoinking people's uh ideas yoinked this person's idea potentially allegedly and made armageddon which was way more popular than deep impact and like i understand why there's like a much more joy in it um but it's about an asteroid headed toward earth and a team of astronauts team of oil drillers yes that have to train to be astronauts in order to uh go drill a hole in the asteroid and blow it up with a nuclear bomb i literally could tell you scene by scene this entire movie i love this movie so much Okay, because I really just wanted you to tell me what you remembered about the plot, not all the behind-the-scenes bullshit. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so Bruce Willis plays Harry Stamper. He's an oil man, and he's got a A daughter. Roughneck. Roughneck. (laughs) You raised me on roughnecks. Why why wouldn't I fall in love with one? Um, So his daughter, Grace Stamper, played by Liv Tyler, Steven Tyler's real-life daughter, maybe. Well, because she didn't know, right? Stop! away <laughs> i you asked me you made- the plot of the movie that's it just say the plot of the movie um asteroids heading toward earth harry stamper is an oil man grace is his daughter uh aj played by ben affleck post veneers is his i'm gonna murder you <laughs> you're going off you're done shut over <laughs> you what do you mean how am i supposed you just can't to help being like a fucking know-it-all like post veneers <laughs> fuck off how was i supposed to know that you had like four pages on ben affleck's veneers obviously i do <laughs> uh, they go up to the asteroid and they gotta blow it up and uh at the at the the love theme is is this i don't want to miss a thing by but not actually by aerosmith and it's played a couple of times in the movie one when aj and grace do like some weird shit with some animal crackers and the other time like kind of at the very end when we see footage of aj and grace getting married great i'm so i'm like very afraid to say fucking anything else now (laughs) I mean, I think you skipped over the whole part where Harry saves the world by detonating the nuke instead of AJ. I didn't know whether that was a fucking spoiler That's the plot or not. of the movie. What did I say? Say the plot of the movie. <laughs> so, at the end, someone has to stay on the asteroid to detonate the nuclear bomb, which, like, science does not back at all. And AJ draws the short straw, but Harry 
sacrifices himself instead in like a scene that still makes me cry and the earth is saved and you know america america hooray it very very much seems like america and the rest of them are saved right so this movie is ripe with misogyny and sexism and racist jokes and casual casual statutory rape jokes oh yeah she never told me her age inappropriate use of the r word i mean it didn't really hold up if you ask me sure i'm waiting to hear what part of it doesn't hold up the whole mother oh the oh the whole i mean we'll we'll get to some of it but um one interesting part was that when the meteors hit well meteors hit major cities of the earth and Mm -hmm. then one of them some are like the first opening scene is new york city and so these like little chunks hit the twin towers and then they like depict the twin towers yeah, that's and rough. standing, but like one's just kind of like kneecapped, like just a chunk's taken out, like it didn't tower. Yeah, it fall. looks like the second plane. Yeah, it's rough. Um, yeah. So that was interesting little flashback. Um, the whole thing is really unbelievable. And Ben Affleck asked Michael Bay why it was easier to train oil drillers to be astronauts than astronauts to drill oil. And do you know what he told him? Shut the fuck up, Ben. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for listeners of our SVU podcast, uh, we, we talk about Shut the Fuck Up, Ben quite a bit because that's the movie we're making. This is Ben talking on the DVD commentary. Yeah. I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers and he told me to shut 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 the fuck up so that that was the end of that talk he was like you know ben just shut up okay you know this is a real plan all right i was like you mean it's a real plan at nasa to train oil drillers he was like just shut your mouth (laughs) see here's where we demonstrate that because bruce is going to tell the guys that they did a bad job of building the drill tank I think Affleck is like extremely drunk while doing this this commentary. Yeah, I know. There's also the part in the DVD commentary where um, Michael Bay says, I know there's no fire in space, but it's a movie and most people don't know that. Yeah. Good job, Michael. <laughs> yeah. So now is the part in the programming where we were going to talk about the teeth story. The baby teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's wrong? Tell me about the baby teeth. I wanted to just read this from the Ringer article because it was pretty funny, I thought. So this is from a Ringer article that is entitled An Examination of the Armageddon DVD Commentary. This part is called A Close Examination of the Ben Affleck Baby Teeth Story. (laughs) Who wrote this? This Ringer article may have been written by my friend Christopher. Andrew Gritadaro. Nope. Pretty early on in the DVD commentary, Michael Bay tells an incredible tale. We paid for a set of $20,000 pearly white teeth, he says. Jesus Ben's going to hate that story. Just FYI, minutes before this, Bay says they also paid $20,000 a day for a dog that was specifically trained to attack Godzilla dogs. There's a decent chance that Bay assumes all things cost $20,000. <laughs> <laughs> I always liked low shots that kind of come right under your chin and make you a little bit heroic. And he kind of had these baby teeth. So I told Jerry Bruckheimer, God, he's got these baby teeth, Jerry. I don't know what to do. Jerry used a very famous star in a plane movie that he replaced teeth with. So he said, we did it to him. Why not do it to Ben? So my dentist had Ben sitting in a dentist chair for a week, eight hours a day. All right. That's wow. A few things right off the bat. First (laughs) of all, that 
God, he's got these baby teeth, Jerry. I don't know what to do is a line from Armageddon commentary and not Seinfeld is shocking. First of all, Michael Bay obsessing over the size of Ben Affleck's teeth and consistently dragging them as baby teeth is one of the otter directorial ticks you will ever see. It does help to read it as Seinfeld, though. He's got baby teeth! <laughs> right? <laughs> David Fincher does an exhausting number of takes. Michael Bay has a deep dislike of small teeth. Third of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't try to figure out who the anonymous small teeth haver in this story is. Okay, so let's figure it out. Do they figure it out? Yes, we are going to figure out who the other baby teether is. Oh, my God. So before 1998, Mm -hmm. Jerry Bruckheimer had produced two films that could be reasonably described as plain movies. Can I guess them? Air Force One? No. No. Uh, Passenger 57? No. I don't know that. The fact that you're not guessing this is just like... Oh, uh, Executive Decision. Oh. Okay. What what plain movies are there then? Die Hard 2? Uh, this is a movie that you said you're going to write a sequel for. Oh, con- oh, Con Air, classic. Con Air, okay. And so, Top Gun. And Top Gun. Oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. There are only two very famous stars in Top Gun and Con Air: Tom Cruise and Nicolas Cage, respectively. Mm-hmm. It's not. Here's Nicolas a photo Cage. of Tom Cruise in 1983's The Outsiders. So there's a thing about Tom Cruise's teeth. Tell me. So in Top Gun. This is so so shout out to my friend Christopher King, who is obsessed with people's veneers, which is one of the reasons why I know that Affleck was is in veneers. But uh, he and I watched Top Gun together and he pointed out that Tom Cruise has like a monotooth. He's got like a it doesn't look like he has two front teeth. It looks like his his he has one front tooth. And no. so it's got to be Cruise. Your photos of both. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> Tom. I'm also semi-obsessed with people's veneers. I always notice them, and I notice when people don't have them. The monotooth. You see the, the monotooth. So we'll post this on our on our Instagram, but Tom Cruise's monotooth is is legit. He has two teeth, but one's just very large. And clearly fake. Like, I think the... Yes, the, it's clearly fake. The, 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 his left, stage left, is the same tooth as the outsider's, and then he's got, like, one really big, shiny veneer that overtakes the others the, the other <laughs> and you can always tell when it's veneers because there's like a deadline around it yeah where but i think whereas affleck got like all veneers yeah so we're gonna see affleck's teeth too oh yeah so hi christopher friend of the show these are ben's teeth in dazed and confused in 1993 so yeah he's got like kind of jaggedy little baby creepy baby teeth like canines yeah. are those canines no well they look like canines but they're everywhere. They're just like miniature. Well, he has two normal size front teeth. Does, and they, every they other sharp, tooth. Though. Every other tooth is like a half tooth. His mouth looks like the Batman symbol. <laughs> so this writer goes, hmm, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I can kind of see where Michael Bay was coming from. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. <laughs> I also think that this, ha- this happens probably more often than we think. <laughs> and then, yes, now we will... I haven't seen the veneer Affleck yet. I just sent it to you. Uh, here we go. Yeah, pretty good. Nice and shiny. They look great. Good job, Ben. If your teeth are shiny enough to see the individual light reflecting in it, I think that they're veneers. <laughs> Anywho, the film premiered on June 29th, 1998 at the Kennedy Space Center in Wh- Cape what? Canaveral, Florida. Shut the fuck up. Gwyneth Paltrow was in attendance. Of course she was. Yeah. 
Despite its obvious shortcomings, it grossed $201 million at the domestic box office and almost $600 million worldwide. I love, fucking love this movie. <laughs> Uh, and it was such an influential 90s film that it got added to the Criterion Collection. <laughs> stupid. So stupid. This is an honor reserved for movies that have made some kind of significant artistic or cultural impact. Yeah, like Do the Right Thing is a Criterion movie, not fucking Armageddon. <laughs> so according to Criterion, it focuses on important classic and contemporary films. I mean, Charlton Heston is in the movie, kind of. Is he? Yeah, he's the voiceover at the beginning. Oh, he's at like, the beginning. The, the asteroid that yes. killed the dinosaurs. Yes. yes. That part is incredibly dumb. I fucking love it. We're just going to show you the fucking earth. Fucking every, every <laughs> little bit of this movie. I'm going to share some fun facts about the movie Armageddon. Okay. Some of these have come from Ranker. Can we do this in trivia format? Okay. Question number one. When? Was the Bruce Willis goodbye scene to Liv Tyler shot? Oh, I don't know. The first? The first day of filming. Yeah. That's, that's fun. That's a good scene. This scene is a real tearjerker. I feel like this is probably the only decent acting that we see from Bruce Willis the entire movie. I agree. Uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna, I promised you I'd come back, but I have to break that promise. Mm. So how did he pull out the big guns? The big guns. This emotional scene. Oh, I don't know. Did you, did you think about rumor? Yes. He was looking at pictures of his own daughters. BT dubs, he has five. He has five daughters? <laughs> yeah. Woof. Yeah. So while filming that scene on the first day, he was looking at his daughters and then he forgot how to act. Good. I mean, he should For forget how to act. every scene after that. He, he needs to stop making the Bruce Willis face and everything. <laughs> okay. So where was the asteroid surface filmed? On a soundstage? In, in, in Burbank? Nope. Where? Uh, the South Dakota Badlands. Oh, really? It was actually outside. The scene where the two shuttles, the Independence and the Freedom, crash land was shot on the Barry Barber Ranch in South Dakota Badlands. Cool. It was not the first movie to use the Badlands National Park as a substitute for an outer space surface. Starship Troopers utilized the same location for Tango Urilla. Would you like to know more? I would. No, that's a line from Starship Troopers. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was just going with your bed. Oh, cool. Oh, the only good <laughs> bug is a dead bug. <laughs> okay. How much money did the spacesuits used in the movie cost to design and make? So much. Like $15 million. No, $20,000 because Michael Bay thinks that everything <laughs> costs $20,000. $1 million. Those things don't look good either. No. Michael Bay was very pissed about it. Was he? Apparently, he like a day before filming or you know, super close. Maybe they were already on set. He freaked out because they were just like spray painting garden gloves silver. Yeah. You can really tell. <laughs> and to that end, Bruce Willis called Bay a screaming director and vowed he would never work with him again. Yep. Uh, but Bay later responded with surprise, saying he loved working with Bruce and he believed they had a positive collaboration. Of course, of of course, yeah. Obviously, the aggressor in the scenario always <laughs> thinks that the situation is so positive. See, also bad art friend. Um, yeah, but Ooh. Willis is notoriously like horrible to work with. I've never worked with him personally so i can't say one way or the other but like i've heard like tons of horror stories about him being like a total diva oh yeah yeah well he's hot is he i think so he used to be lyrics for lunch exclusive bruce willis is hot 
He's Willis is hot. Even with he's the bangable. bleach blonde, like last remnants of his hair left. No, he's bald. In this movie, he has like a tiny. He's little- a bilf. A, a baldy, baldy, I'd like to fuck. Okay, great. <laughs> You're just g- giving me all kinds of ammo for the <laughs> pull quote at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> all right, smartass. How much Kodak film was used? Oh, like 10 miles. Over a million feet. Oh. Whenever a movie used that much of their product, Kodak would respond by sending a gift basket, which they did. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> And then the last one was the writer of Deep Impact insists Disney stole his idea to make Armageddon, which Aviv already spoilered. Sorry. Would you like to tell us the plot of Deep Impact in three sentences or less? Yeah, it's basically the same exact thing executed very differently. There is it is an absolutely humorless, joyless version of Armageddon. Um, Mm -hmm. The main character being like a news reporter. I said that with disgust. I actually don't hate the movie, but the main character is a news reporter played by T. Leone, who is like reporting on the Wolf Biederman asteroid as it's heading toward Earth. And instead of Armageddon, which is like a week, this takes place over like nine months. So it's a little, it skews a little bit more realistic than Armageddon. I've literally never seen it. Oh, it's not. It's long, but it's not bad. I mean, if it's like, if you want to see this alternate universe of Armageddon where everyone takes things seriously, it's pretty good. <laughs> Have you ever seen Melancholia? No, I'm I'm good. Okay. I I, I Lars it. von Trier freaks me out. <laughs> it's insanely boring, and you're like, what? Why? This is so boring. And then the last ten minutes, you're just like, wow. This is from Movie Phone. According to a May 1998 issue of Starlog magazine, producers David Brown and Richard Zanuck came up with the concept of Deep Impact sometime in the late 1970s when they were contemplating a way to update the 1951 film When Worlds Collide. Of even the future, play the, uh, what is it, the Static X song When Worlds Collide. (laughs) The producers took the concept to Steven Spielberg, who had already bought the rights to the hammer of god a novel by arthur c clark with similar subject matter an asteroid on a collision course with earth eventually the filmmakers would merge the projects with a script by bruce joel rubin later rewritten by michael tolkien subsequent drafts of the screenplay took it away from when worlds collide and hammer of god enough that neither was credited this left clark deeply unhappy particularly since dreamworks had used his name in promotion of the project Spielberg intended to direct the project, ultimately called Deep Impact, himself. So he intended to direct the project himself, injecting some popcorn movie heft to his newly developed studio, but commitments to Amistad prevented him from making the movie in the window that he had allotted. Okay, why was everyone in such a hurry? Because over at the Disney lot in Burbank, a suspiciously similar project was brewing. Years later, Rubin claimed that Disney had outright stolen the idea for the project. In the nonfiction book, Tales from the Script, ha ha. The writer says that, while taking a meeting at Disney, he spoke about the Deep Impact script and noticed that the executives he was meeting with were furiously taking notes. This wouldn't be the first time Disney had been accused of plagiarism. Some accounts suggest the entire concept of Disney MGM Studios, now Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida, was lifted entirely from discussions with Universal that Disney chief Michael Eisner had when he was still running Paramount, and it wouldn't be the last. This kind of skullduggery went on even throughout production. We spoke to someone who said that Bay told him that Bay and someone else had snuck into Paramount while the film was being edited and actually stole the daily so that the Armageddon production team could see what the competition was up to. That doesn't surprise me. Bay, by all accounts, is like a total bro dude. 
Um, after Deep Impact was released, Disney Studios chairman Joe Roth gave Armageddon an additional $3 million for even bigger visual effects <laughs> sequences to be incorporated just a few months before sucks, Armageddon dude. was set to debut. Poor Deep Impact. <laughs> You're so long. Before we leave Michael Bay in the space dust, I want to provide us a Lyrics for Lunch exclusive. Ooh. So, Lindsay, in your email, you will uh, see something called Stretch. So, Stretch is a screenplay. Uh, a movie by Joe Carnahan, who also wrote and directed the movie The Gray with Liam Neeson and The A-Team with Liam Neeson and and Narc with not Liam Neeson. Um, but I came across this script. This was like on some message boards, um, but I came across this script for a movie called Stretch and I fell in love with it. Um, and the premise of the movie is a it's like a one night in the city movie and a limousine driver named stretch has to make like ten thousand dollars or something in a night or else mobsters are gonna fucking break his whole body is there and like a so, stretch wrestler toy or something that i stretch remember? armstrong oh yeah stretch Armstrong. yeah he's called stretch because he uh he drives a stretch limo okay so uh we have you know he runs on gets on the wrong side of the mob and this like kind of instagram douche played by in the movie a friend of mine and he's haunted by the ghost of a different uh limo driver named carl with a k played by ed helms anyway we're gonna read a, a scene from stretch that uh involves michael bay and the scene was cut out of the movie do you want to play stretch or michael bay stretch Okay, you can be stretched. We're at the bottom of page 91. Stretch. Ah. <laughs> Flash. <laughs> um, so the movie's pretty good, but the, uh, the script is, I love the script so much. So at this point, Stretch is on foot. People are chasing him. Um, the cops and the, he's like, poses a cop. The cop's chasing him. The mom's chasing him. Exterior, street, night. Stretch spills out onto a residential street, putting distance on his pursuit. He sprints across an intersection. A car swerves to avoid him. He pulls the badge, intent on commandeering a vehicle. The headlights hit him. The high beams. Then a horn blares. He holds that badge up against the glare. Police! I need your vehicle! <laughs> breaks, <laughs> breaks squeal. A Ferrari fishtails into a flat spin. It screeches past stretch, missing him by millimeters. It strikes a curb and flips sidelong, going airborne and barrel rolling multiple times across the grass median. After five or six full rotations, it slams down upright, coming to a rest. Smoke and steam seep from its underside. The car remains running. Stretch stands there, agog, hand over his mouth. He breaks into a run, rushing over to the wreck just as the gull wing doors of the ferrari open and a man collapses from the cab he rolls up on his back groaning stretch recognizes him right away he stops stoops down hey are is your name michael are you michael bay michael bay nods and sits up slowly still dazed are you okay Bay stares off in a deep, almost transcendental gaze and seems completely unfazed. The smallest trickle of blood leaks down from his hairline. Bro? Stretch, mindful of the crash he's just caused, still scans the vicinity for his pursuers. He rechecks the watch. 31 minutes remain. Then, this is Michael Bay talking. You know, 
I just left dinner with my agents and I'm driving home thinking maybe it's time. Maybe I've reached the critical point in my career where I should do a small indie drama or an intimate character study, something very low budget performance based, you know, with lesbians or American Indians, both maybe. OMG. And just as I've made up my mind, just as I'm about to embrace the change, I find myself in midair doing an endo with an airbag exploding in my face. So is that fucking fate intervening or what? How did it look? How did the wreck, dude, the crash? Was it sick? Because it was fucking R word from the inside. Everything at like 1200 frames a second with negative G's must have been bitching to see. It was. Yeah, I think you would have been impressed. The distant wail of sirens has stretched anxious as Bay acts out that fateful moment behind the wheel. Man, I had to bang back, boom, downshift, and put myself into a spin just to avoid hitting you. Best drivers in the world would have turned you into a hood ornament, but I miss you completely. What about your car, though? Dude, it's a 2011. This, this is written in 2012. Dude, this is a, <laughs> it's a 2011. Who cares? It can be replaced. What cannot be replaced is the three seconds you just gave me, you crazy son of a bitch. Where'd you come from? Three silhouettes are a block back, running hard toward them. Stretch edges toward the still idling Ferrari. Can I borrow your car for a bit? Bay glances over his shoulder, sees Stretch's pursuers. Wait, are those dudes chasing you? Oh, fuck yeah. Take it. You kidding? But hey, if you haven't called an ambulance, hook me up. I, I got jack shit for feeling in my legs. <laughs> Stretch hops in the Ferrari, ripping the airbag free. Footfalls and shouts echo from behind him. So that's the scene. The scene was cut out of the movie. But it was filmed? So no, I don't think the scene was ever filmed. Okay. But it, it is my favorite, notwithstanding the, using the R word, which should not have been in there. This is my favorite scene in the movie. I think it is hilarious. This movie has like random cameos from like Ray Liotta. Yes. Um, it's like very very hollywood very much about hollywood and he meets all these crazy weird people um and so i once uh talked to joe carnahan the writer and director of this movie um and told him that i read the script and told him that uh my favorite scene the michael bay scene was cut out of the movie and did he have any advice for my students who are just starting out in the industry and he said always fight for the michael bay scene <laughs> You heard it here first. You heard folks. it here first. So all this sketchy stuff was going on. Aerosmith was supposed to be writing a power ballot for this film. For Armageddon or for Deep Impact? For Armageddon. Okay. Because if they had also poached Aerosmith, that would be real fucked up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Deep Impact. <laughs> wow. Aerosmith had been touring to promote their March 97 album, Nine Lives, their 12th studio album that peaked at number one on Billboard's 200 in early April and saw 77 weeks on the charts. 77 weeks is a lot of weeks, man. That is a lot of weeks. To hear the band tell it, they were worn out creatively and had nothing to give to the blockbuster. Great. But most retellings that I trust say that the song was written long before Aerosmith was ever in the picture. Okay, so this is the story that I had heard too, but I'm not going to say it because I'll get yelled at. Please keep your mouth shut until I say it, and then you can talk back. Okay. Guitarist Joe Perry told Classic Rock Magazine in 2002, quote, At the time, we just didn't have the time to settle down and do it. We were out on the road, so they brought us in to see the movie and said, Here's the song. This is where it fits into the movie. You can do it if you want. So we were in the studio within the next three days cutting it. And yeah, we do wish that we'd had a little more time so that we could have had a shot at writing it, but... It was perfect timing. The song was great. People loved it. And I don't think people care that much who wrote it. Certainly not. 
So now I want to tell you about the song's conception in great detail and the real writer, who is named Diane Warren. Hmm. So this is excerpted from The Ringer from writer Rob Harvilla. It began as our greatest cultural artifacts <laughs> must all begin. Shut up, Rob. With Barbara Streisand. In 1997, the Uber Diva and her new fiance, the actor James Brolin. I don't like that guy. You don't like James Brolin? Not really. What is he doing these days to not like? Mm, just brolin around. <laughs> the Uber Diva and her new fiance, the actor James Brolin, snuggled on a couch opposite Barbara Walters for an enormously sweet 2020 report on the fearsome intensity of their young love and the finer points of their nightly cuddling routine. Stop. Quote, I hate this. And we're just about to fall asleep, I thought. Babs recalls of one such super romantic incident. And he says, I don't want to fall asleep. She kept her eyes closed as she recounted this to better simulate the experience of almost falling asleep with Barbara Streisand. And so I say, why not? And he says, because then I'll miss you. End of anecdote. Her eyes opened, her smile brightened, a nation swooned. It is likely that very few fans of Boston Arena rock gods Aerosmith tuned in for this, but lucky for Aerosmith, Uber songwriter Diane Warren did. She wrote down a song title, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Just the title. I love a good title, Warren told me in mid-June, some two decades after the fact, so I do that a lot. And a few months later, when director Michael Bay needed a pop song to anchor his new movie, a modest little indie called Armageddon... Warren set to work crafting a hymn worthy of both that song title and the literal end of the world. Okay. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing was Diane Warren's fourth Oscar-nominated song of, I believe, 12. Wow. One of which, fun fact, if you remember, when we were in a race to watch all of the Oscar movies nominated in 2020, mm -hmm. and we watched that horrible Christian Colma movie. Oh, yeah. That's one of them. Yes, because it was nominated for Best Original Song. Bottom of the I'm Lake standing with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Diane Warren wrote that. Great. The movie is called Breakthrough. Woof. Yeah. Warren is also responsible for th more than 30 top 10 Billboard Hot 100 hits. Yeah, you should know Diane Warren's name. She is a very famous singer. You're talking to me or the, the listeners? I'm talking to the listeners. Okay. Back to The Ringer. Born in Los Angeles in 1956, Warren got her start as a chart-scaling songwriter in 1983 with Laura Branigan's Solitaire and went on to write massive hits for Celine Dion, Tony Braxton, Ace of Bass, Cher, Millie Vanilli, Brandy, and Monica. <laughs> I think we all know where you come down on the Brandy versus Monica feud. <laughs> the Boy is Mine, The Boy is Mine, The Boy is Mine. I like that song. Did she write The Boy is Mine? I don't, no, think, I don't so. think so. Her first Oscar nomination came in 1988, courtesy of Starship's Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. <sighs> Good song. A number one pop hit from the movie, Mannequin. Yes! Oh, classic <laughs> Philadelphia movie, Mannequin. For whatever reason, I thought the love theme for Mannequin was, um, I am the man who will fight for your, for your glory. Yeah, or yeah. I think that, that, but I think that that's from Robin Hood, actually. By the way, when Worlds Collide is by Power Man 5000, not Static X. I apologize to all who I have hurt in this time. Uh, so, weirdly, The Glory of Love is from The Karate Kid 2. Oh, sick. And it's by Peter Cetera. <laughs> all right. Well, everyone lost. Everyone loses here. Her third nomination and one of her biggest hits ever arrived in the form of How Do I Live? 
the peak country barn burner sung in separate versions confusingly by Trisha Yearwood and Leanne Rhymes. From Con Air. Yes. Yes. 1997 action movie, classic. Con Air. Yes. Jerry Bruckheimer. A year later came Armageddon with Bruckheimer producing and Bay directing. Warren was really their only option, hit song-wise, as incongruous as their styles might be. I think it was smart to do those songs for those kinds of movies, Warren says, because they're kind of boy movies, you know? And so to have a song, like an emotional song, it helps give it heart that it might not have or accentuate the heart that it does have. She and Bay and Bruckheimer would reconvene for 2001's Pearl Harbor with Warren supplying the Faith Hill song, There You'll Be, and picking up her sixth Oscar nomination. Horrible movie. But I don't want to miss a thing as the peak moment for both this unlikely trio and the notion of weepy power ballads and blaring action flicks overall, in part because the ultimate boy movie required the services of the ultimate boy movie band. Shut up, guys. (laughs) Okay, so the sexist shit extends not just in front of the camera but behind the camera because what they're saying is to get girls in the theater, you need like a weepy a weepy heartfelt song in order to like even get them remotely interested in your boy movie which is like a the whole premise is stupid because like women love space blowing up movies as much as men mm-hmm. or they're allowed to or not but also like the this the misogyny also hurts men not and i'm not saying like men are the real victims but like the whole culture of misogyny like traps men in their actions as well so like the fact that the the kind of subtext of all this is like we are we want people to feel things the only people that are allowed to feel things are women so we're gonna put this emotional song in there and if like some men cry well that's okay because they're just with their girlfriends and it's like the girlfriends cry and but they don't have feelings actually they only care about like boobs and shit exploding which is like clearly not true um but the fact that like we feel trapped we as men I can only speak to the male experience. We as men feel trapped in in this kind of emotionless anger is the only acceptable emotion to show is really harmful and perpetuated by like little dumb shit like this. Yes. Do you want to cry? <laughs> Sometimes. This is a safe space. I cry at Armageddon. I cry at movies fucking all the time. I know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I agree. I think you summed it up really well. Thank you. Um. I also remember how this movie was marketed to me and my friends. And it was very much the song, the animal cracker scene, which yeah, we yeah. talk about. Grace was a proxy <sighs> for all women. <laughs> um, Don't and, you want Ben Affleck to shove cookies up your vagina? Well, <laughs> something that I took out of this, of my notes, was an interview that Liv Tyler did with Interview Magazine with um, Joaquin Phoenix after they had done Inventing the Abbots. Mm. Right? That was that. I that know was that the movie, one. yeah. Okay. And so sh- they were both kind of talking about how every time that they read a script, it's always like, beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like the action. No, the what do you call that? The, the, the character introduction? Yeah, the character introduction is always just like, beautiful young woman. <laughs> yeah, Julie, <sighs> hot. <laughs> yeah, and all the roles are always, you know, there to support men, and, and that was what Liv was really coming up against in, in the 90s, look, yeah. fit shopping around for roles. There, there's a good Twitter account called Wim, Women's Introduction or Introducing Women, where it 
say, it like clips out bits of a script introducing a, a a woman a female character and like there it's always like julie with breasts like a 17 year old and no brain oh my god but uh yeah whenever so i teach screenwriting whenever someone mentions the attractiveness of a character i it's usually women because that's how that's how fucked up our society is i like i always my my reaction is always like yeah we know they're hot this is a movie everybody's hot <laughs> yeah unfortunately <laughs> jeff fuck ugly <laughs> well i mean you can have ugly men in hollywood and you do yeah right and and very ugly you have men to be serve a purpose women, women yeah just are there to be ogled support men worry about exploited men. and support them yeah yeah um hollywood historically has treated women really badly and it is slowly getting better but like emphasis on slowly and yeah i have a lot of trouble with especially like once again i can only speak to the male experience but how men are trained to navigate like the world and and talk to women based on the movies and tv that they're shown mm -hmm. and like how literally this is like part of my book please go on sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but yeah i'm fascinated by I, this too i call it the indiana jones problem Ooh. where it's like in indiana jones he wants to kiss the girl she doesn't want to kiss him so he, well the answer is to try harder and she still doesn't want to kiss him so the answer is to try even harder and she kisses him back and the most dangerous part is that he was right he was right that she really did want to kiss him and all he had to do was like try extra 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 hard and mm -hmm. like that's not how the real world works and teaching young boys that that is how the real world works is dangerous so dangerous and and i have a lot of kind of pity or sympathy is not the right word but like i feel bad for young kids who are never taught what consent or what boundaries are violating consent and boundaries without knowing and clearly i feel worse for the victims of whatever assault has taken place but like the the entire machine is the problem and both the aggressors for the most part and the victims are the victims that's okay i think i think fixing the machine fixes the the problem you'll have fewer aggressors and fewer victims Right, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, we act out what we see mm -hmm. reflected back to us. And as a woman growing up, as, as a young girl, I mean, I, from the, the messages that I got from movies and music was that to be worthy, you have to be sexy. Mm -hmm. But if you are sexy, somehow you're inherently unworthy. Mm -hmm. You're too slutty you know um, be a slut but not a whore but yeah. don't be a prude it's very confusing this and, is very tangential <laughs> no but i think that we can relate it back to grace damper right because because her role in this movie is well i'm a girl who can dress up real nice and and wear chopsticks in my hair but i like i was raised on an oil rig and i'm like tough and but i'm also sensitive and so she's like she has become this kind of weirdo wet it's like her character is drawn as like this weirdo's wet dream of like what every girl should be which is like i can drink beer and i don't mm -hmm. care if you make sexist hang jokes out with the guys yeah hang out with the guys but i'm still like super hot and then the way that they all all the men kind of um 
watch her and try and control her decisions and like there's one part where she's like screaming at harry about when she got her first period and it's like why is this conversation happening in this movie this is so strange yeah and and i think like this is kind of feminism 101 or maybe 201 to be honest but but like the fact that so many people are protective of her does not make her any less of an object to them no that's what makes her an object to them right but like so like like objectifying women is not just about turning them into sex objects it's turning them into any object for protection for worship for sexual graph you know whatever it is right right it's the removal of autonomy mm-hmm. and thinking that you somehow know better she has basically none in this movie she stays in one room for almost two hours right but she but but to live tyler's credit she fucking nails it she does a really good job bringing as much depth to this character as she possibly can which is like not that much but um <laughs> she's like a good actor she and she's a good actor and and i understand her kind of struggle or i don't understand but i can like see her struggle to find well-rounded roles for women especially in the 90s and like how fucking horrible that must have been for her she yeah. rules i love her and everything she was not a fan except for lord of the rings i don't love lord of the rings in general me either smoke a cigarette guys okay so this is the last quote that I'm probably going to read from Warren just to wrap up this weird sexism dynamic with a bow. When Warren originally wrote the song, she was imagining a powerful female vocalist singing it, and she's name-dropped Celine Dion many times. She imagined that she would, that Celine Dion would be singing this and song. And that is the story that I had heard, that it was written f- specifically for Celine Dion. Is, wait, can I, can I make a horrible prediction? Sure. I th- so the so the story that I had heard was that Celine Dion didn't do it because Titanic and My Heart Will Go On was still so big. Is the reason that they didn't go with Celine Dion because they wanted like a manly, authoritarian, authoritative voice of the song, like a like a rock band? Yeah, I think so. Fuck, that's horrible, dude. I mean, they had Aerosmith doing four other songs on the soundtrack, which I'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I also read that they had originally offered it to you too. But then after Liv was cast, they rethought about it and went with Aerosmith. Makes sense. You two had also done some, they had done the Batman Forever soundtrack a couple years earlier, which was huge for them. Um, But this is Warren's quote that sort of followed her talking in an interview about how she thought it was going to be a female singing it. She said, with that kind of lyric, I mean, for a guy to sing that song, especially a badass like Steven Tyler, it becomes a whole other thing. It just makes it more compelling. That's what women never usually hear their boyfriends or husbands saying, right? So here you have this tough guy, Steven, singing that kind of lyric. Whereas if you had a female vocalist, I don't know. It's not the same. I kind of agree with her that like kind of the, the narrative perspective of it does change when it's a man. But Steven Tyler's like not a fucking manly man. He dresses like my aunt. No, but I think like the whole arc of the film is about male vulnerability. Like we see with Harry's character. Mm -hmm. He's a tough guy. He's like trying to shoot AJ, blow up the whole oil rig. And then he's like, I always thought of you as a son. And and they say that they love each other. Marry my daughter. And I love you. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, honestly, that's like, I, I buy that. I will not excuse, but I will like kind of tolerate. a a, a misogynistic character that ultimately learns that they need to be more in touch with their emotions or whatever like i like Mm -hmm. i get that i get why people have to be at negative 10 to go up to 
positive five or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, 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 okay, I buy this, and I, I'm kind of coming back around to the idea that that this movie does have something to teach men about navigating the world emotionally. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the Armageddon soundtrack. Okay. It was released in June of 1998 by Columbia Records and Hollywood Records and features several songs recorded specifically for the soundtrack, including I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and What Kind of Love Are You On? I don't know that song at fucking all. That's another Aerosmith song that they wrote just for the movie. I hate it already. Actually, they I lied. They did not write that just for the movie. This is a song that they wrote for Nine Lives that didn't make it onto the album. Okay, so it's like a B-side. Yeah. I remember Sweet Emotion being in it mm-hmm. in the training scene and I fucking hate that song. And I remember They do like kind of a weird Tom Sawyer rush thing. Aerosmith does? Yeah, there's like a no, they did like, come together. They do come together, which is also bad. And I, like there's like I'm singing it very poorly, but there there is a, another Aerosmith song that I can hear and like see Ben Affleck in his veneers in my in my mind's eye. Well, it's not on the soundtrack. There's only four. On the what it, what is the song that they wrote for Nine Lives that that didn't? Oh, maybe make it's it? that. What kind of love are you on? Let me, let me Oh, this is absolutely not the song I was thinking of, but um, I do remember it from the soundtrack. It's like in the stripper scene. Oh, God. I have so many problems with this whole stripper thing. <laughs> Molly Mouse? I think it's Molly Mounts, like like mounting you. No way. Okay. See, I'm so naive. thought it was Mouse. <laughs> Hi, listeners of Even the Future here. The Aerosmith song I was talking about is Love in an Elevator. We're going to go out on it this week. The album went four times platinum in the U.S. The soundtrack. The soundtrack. In September 1998, the video clip made the top 10 of the first ever episode of TRL. No shit. Aerosmith came in on number four behind Aaliyah. Are you that somebody? Sure. Uh Tell me about somebody. Yeah. And Sync's tearing up my heart. Great. And Backstreet Boys, I'll Never Break Your Heart, <laughs> was number one. Also on the top ten that day was Will Smith, Just the Two of Us. Amazing. Marilyn Manson, The Dope Show. Oh, kind of an okay song. I know. I remember The Dope Show being on like TRL and MTV. Yeah. Marilyn Manson's uh, a bad person. There's so bad. many so many monsters are involved in all these, in the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Aaliyah, Marilyn Manson. <laughs> Next one was Usher, My Way. He's okay, I think. I like Usher, but please, no one tell me otherwise. Goo Goo Dolls, Iris. Great. Monica, The First Night. <laughs> and then, okay, this is number 10. I remember every single one of these songs being on TRL, except this song, which I don't even remember existing. Okay. Monster Magnet by Space Lord. <laughs> what? Do you okay. know this song? No. I watched the video and I was like, nope, that's not a real thing. <laughs> Um, all right, let's take a listen to Monster Magnet by Space Lord. I've been stuffed in your pocket for the last hundred days. This song is not real. Right? This is a fake song. This is like an April Fool's joke. This is. <laughs> this is this is definitely no. If anyone remembers the song, be on what TRL. What the fuck is this? Please at us. <laughs> Tune in next week for our Monster Magnet by Space Lord. <laughs> Are they, oh, their Monster Magnet. And the song is called Space Lord. Might be. <laughs> From the corrections Still. department. 
still no memory. No. I'm so okay. I'm so baffled by this. Right? There's a car in All right, well, I no. can No. The song doesn't exist. We're 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 really uh this is some Mandela effect <laughs> shit. bullshit. Exactly. That's what I thought. Um, okay, so back to the Armageddon soundtrack once again. As I told you, <laughs> there were four Aerosmith songs on okay. the soundtrack, and then there's one song credited to Steven Tyler called, you want to guess? No, I don't. Animal Crackers. No. Oh, no, Lindsay, no. <laughs> so, wait. M- M- Lindsay. And we're going to talk all about it. Animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits. <laughs> loop de loop. Gosh, oh, I, would and I have fun. That I would empty my bank account to hear <laughs> that song sung by Steven Tyler over the animal crackers theme. <laughs> um, um, that's from Bright Eyes, which is a movie that I watched a lot of times. Oh, I've never actually seen the movie. I just know the the clip, the Shirley Temple clip. Oh yeah, it's like the instrumental version of this. Sorry. I do remember this being like not I, the song, the song, but not the song. Qualifies And just the dialogue Sweet. from the from the scene. I'm very afraid to say anything else I know about the scene or this movie. For fear of of being murdered yeah, by you. You can talk. You can talk. <laughs> There's a rumor that Kevin Smith wrote this scene. Really? It, yeah, it feels kind of Kevin Smithy, and they were very close friends at the time, Affleck and Kevin Smith. Yeah. There's also a rumor that he wrote the "My Wife Used to Fart in Her Sleep" scene in Goodwill Hunting. Interesting. Basically, anytime someone like fucking monologues in a Ben Affleck related <laughs> picture from the 90s, people are like, did Kevin Smith write this? I've seen Kevin Smith talk a couple times. He's very verbose. The gazelle now faces man's most perilous question. No. Way down. next week baby do you think it's possible that anyone else in the world is doing this very same thing at this very same moment I hope so otherwise what the hell are we trying to say interesting i guess they just really wanted liv's dad to serenade her while she has sex with a cookie okay so this is not uh, this is either a segue or a spoiler this is not the first time that liv's dad has been like creepily close to her being overtly sexualized 
crazy video? Yeah. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But I mean, so I'm all for the sexual liberation of women and daughters. Trust sure. me. But this this scene is just yuck anyway, without her dad singing in the background, in my opinion. <laughs> it's about who has agency in the scene, and it's like, definitely not Liv. No. She's just laying there. I would I would also pay for like a re a recut of the scene where she's shoving animal crackers into his underwear. Yeah. He is a monkey playing with your balls. Yeah. Has anyone uh, uh, listeners write in? Have you ever tried this animal crackers bit with a partner? Oh god. Either being the animal cracky or the animal cracker. Let us know <laughs> at lyrics for lunch at gmail.com. I think I have to go get a cookie. <laughs> we'll be back note. after these messages. Okay, this is the segment that we call hashtag daddy issues. <laughs> Do we need a theme for daddy issues? <laughs> Who's the boss theme song? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Liv Tyler grew up in Portland, Maine with her mom, B.B. Buell, who had lived when she was 23. Mm. There was no tone of my voice because I'm not judging her. No, 23 is not an obscene time <laughs> to have a kid. I know, I just hate... We're just like the childless geriatrics. <laughs> exactly, I know. <laughs> just like, ew. <laughs> um, babies having <okay>. babies. <laughs> so they moved to New York when Liv was about 12 years old. I was going to ask you, what do you know about Stephen and Liv's relationship? But I'm afraid you're just going to blow your whole load. I know a lot. Okay, so according to Biography.com, Liv was 11 years old looking up at an Aerosmith poster on her wall when she had a realization that would change her life for... Eh, for the story I heard was that she was at an Aerosmith concert, which is much worse. Beverly Buell, nicknamed BB, was kind of a Penny Lane type. What does that mean for those of you, for, for <laughs> listeners who haven't seen the one movie that you compulsively reference? <laughs> it means she gained notoriety after her publicized romance with Todd Rundgren, Utopia singer, singer of Utopia. Mm-hmm. Who is Liv's adoptive father. So, yeah, she has a publicized romance with this musician guy in the 70s. He's a lead singer of a band. And her relationship... After that, she had relationships with several rock musicians over the following four decades. I'm not saying they were romantic. She was just, she just you know, yeah, a band-aid. Yeah. The, the, uh, Todd Rundgren, you'd know from Hello, It's Me. Hello, It's Me. That's Todd Rundgren. The, but so so Rundgren was Liv's adopted father, adoptive father. Yes. So did she know that he, she didn't know? She didn't. Know. He knew. <laughs> he must have. Bibi had a brief fling with Steven Tyler in 1976, which resulted in Liv's birth. And Rundgren knew that there was a chance that Liv wasn't his, but he signed her birth certificate and gave her his last name and decided he was going to raise her anyway. So she was Olivia Rundgren. Yes. And when she came out looking like Billy the Big Mouth Bass, he was not suspicious at all. BB said that she decided to keep the paternity secret from Liv because of Steven's drug addiction. Mm. She said that she and Rundgren made a pact that he would be Liv's father. And if it ever came, became an issue, they would tell her when she turned 18. Okay, that's fair. Um, not to totally digress, but the Todd Rundgren, like the people that like, his version of the deadheads right the grateful dead fans are called the the super fans are called the deadheads uh his super fans are called the hot toddies really yeah hate that like the drink i don't but yeah the, that's like what their fan is it like toddy like todd yeah t-o-d-d-i-e-s 
yeah, hot toddies. So back to BB. She was uh, Playboy magazine's November 1974 Playmate of the Month. Hell yeah, brother. And so this is from Playboy. Oh, this is from pbplaymates.com. Okay. Very, very accurate source. Sure. It was the rockin' 70s, and everywhere the eye could see were rock stars on stage, enthusiastic groupies waiting for them by the backstage door, and rock girlfriends keeping an eye on them and their men. No name is more synonymous with the term rock girlfriend than B.B. Buell, who dated several of rock music's greatest, including Todd Rundgren. Sometimes being the girlfriend of a very visible rock figure can be bothersome, explains our Playmate of the Month. End quote. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) Journalism. Journalism at its finest. The way Liv tells it, she grew up with a nice eclectic mix of parental figures, spending her childhood living between the homes of her mother and her grandmother and her aunt and her uncle and her cousins in Maine. Quote, My mother was very young when she had me, and there was a little bit of confusion about where I came from, but I was very loved and very well taken care of by all my family, which was wonderful. She is like like the the height of just like being classy about having a fucked up childhood. Yeah, she's so graceful. Maybe that's why they called her Grace Stamper. Yeah. Also, her boyfriend's name was AJ, and it was AJ in Empire Records. Oh, Go fix the sign, AJ. What do you want, AJ? All right, so Liv told The Guardian, when I realized that Stephen was my father, it was a moment that was bigger than me. It was almost spiritual. When you meet kin, there's an energy and sparkle between your bodies. Hate that. It must be chemical somehow, DNA and genes. I felt a connection in a very strong way when I met him as a little girl, and I didn't know why at first, but I figured it out rather quickly. So Liv first met Steven when she was eight or nine. So she, so wait, she met him and, and then still didn't know. Yeah, she met him at one of Rundgren's concerts mm. when she's eight or nine. And she said she remembers him buying her a Shirley Temple at the bar. No. And she, she says she wondered if he was Mick Jagger's son. Very funny. I used to confuse okay. them too because they have <laughs> the, the, the fish lips. Um, yeah. Steven, you're on thin ice here, buddy. <laughs> She said, uh, I had no idea who he was, but I fell madly in love with him. I put his poster on my wall. This, she told this to Interview Magazine in 1997. I would talk to him on the wall, and he would give me stuffed animals, and I would tuck them into bed before I would get in. I loved him so deeply. My mom has a diary entry or something where I wrote, I think Stephen is my father. So Liv was a teenage model in New York. And when she was 16 years old in high school, she debuted alongside Alicia Silverstone in Aerosmith's 1994 crazy music video, which is also tasteless and disturbing. Okay. So now we're going to watch it. <laughs> I was trying to stop this from happening. So, I, so, okay, I have a burning question that I will wait until, af- I guess, after the video to ask. Okay. Okay, so this is the Aerosmith crazy video. And I know that this is two, uh, one part of a two-parter. It's like crazy and crying, which are basically the same song. Yeah. Okay. Pick, Pick a wedge. wedgie. Just an underage girl. But that's, that's yeah. Alicia, right? Yeah, I think. Okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, small favors. At least Alicia is more sexualized in this, in this one than his 16-year-old daughter. No, what? No. Good, nasty tricks? Yeah. Making love? Exactly. No. no. None of this Steven? is okay. Steven, you're on thin ice, Steven. She's Steven. convertible that she's chilling there. 
<laughs> with the keys in it, yeah. I guess. Now they're just in their underwear. Yeah. It's weird. They they definitely like are teenagers, but it's weird that I like know them as adults and they have the same faces, but like are young. It's like a it's it's very weird. I think at the time it was more shocking, or it could have been more shocking at least, because we didn't know them as adults, Alicia Silverstone and adult Liv Tyler. But also, we were kids, too. So we are just yeah, like, they oh, they're older than us. Considerably older than us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was no, there was no dis- distinction between, like, someone who was 17 and someone who was presumably, like, 45. <laughs> I mean, this was only one year, if that, before Empire Records. Yeah, where she's also quite, she, like, sexualizes herself yeah. in that movie. She sexualizes herself. I think the like the character, and the director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is before or after Clueless. This is before. Right. I can't imagine Clueless. She was like such a huge star after Clueless. I yeah. can't imagine <laughs> that she was in a music video. Good job, nearly age-appropriate guy. Right. Eating the red vines. Yeah, so they're robbing... A, we should tell the, the yeah. people what's happening. Yes. They're robbing like a like a convenience store, and the clerk is like, you're hot, whatever, let's just do it. Just going to eat my candy. Then they take some kind of naked photo in a photo booth. Yeah. It definitely... Oh, they take a naked photo for him. Oh, yep. They give it to him. Oh, God. So dumb. Whoa! Zoinks! Oh, yeah. Now there's, like, a pedophile that's just, like, jerking off looking at them. Also, like, they can't drive, which is a little weird. (laughs) That's, like... The the intercuts of Aerosmith playing somehow make this much worse. Right? I completely agree. This is just like a tea. This is like a wet dream of teenage girls, and then he's just like naked. And then slow like, blues rock music, right? Out. So they're going to a strip club for amateur night, and Alicia Silverstone's in drag as Liv Tyler's like pimp. Oh yeah. And now Liv Tyler in in bell bottoms. I have to stress is just Steven Tyler's face. <laughs> Pole dancing pole dancing and kind of there's this like homoerotic thing that she's doing with Lisa Silverstone which is like great good for good for them they are the only two characters that should be hooking up in this in this show because they are age appropriate only if they want to yeah not for the pleasure of these perverted males no I'm just saying at least they're both 17 (laughs) or 16 or however old they are Liv was only 16 Liv was only how many teen? One six. Oh, I heard 15. I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, this is, this is a lot. They're like pillow fighting and jumping on the okay, bed. Okay, so when they were pillow fighting, I stopped watching last night. It was like, I'm out. So that's uh, as far as I, I got. Mean, I, I think you've seen the most of it. Okay. 
Nope, they're going to a oh, they meet sexy a guy. farmer. Sexy farmer, Brad Pitt and <laughs> River Wild or whatever, or Thumb and Louise. Sexy farmers hopping in the convertible. Use the tractor. He might be age appropriate. I don't know. Now they're going to go mud wrestling. I think you're right. <laughs> oh my god. He doesn't want to get dirty. Oh, but he does. Now he does. He's a dirty, dirty boy. This is a lot. This is like like I I know that this is kind of a gag or whatever that they that they sexualize like like a, a Hollywood and rock music classic story that like Liv is hypersexualized in the Aerosmith video but like this is a lot this is this is pretty bad my dad would murder me for like watching this video not starring in it well so, but your dad's <laughs> not Steven Tyler but here's the thing I think we, <laughs> the, tra the tractor gag is pretty funny actually um, it spells crazy I thought it was going to be a penis. I also thought it was going to be a penis. <laughs> it's still not over. Yeah, there's like now a post they're picking up a fucking hitchhiker. No, Is they that, didn't. Oh, Beastie Boy? I don't know. It's the farmer in different clothes. Is it? It's Timothy Chalamet. It does look like T Timothy Chalamet. So I just pulled up crying, and it's Alicia Silverstone on like a bridge. But I think it's just Alicia Silverstone, not, not Liv. Uh, it's like a little sequel and they jump off a bridge or whatever. Anyway, uh, Aerosmith sucks. Okay, so okay. here's my burning question. Okay. Lindsay. Aviv. At this point in time, does Steven Tyler know that the girl in the video is his daughter? I don't know which what I want the answer to be. Yes, of course. He does know. <laughs> yes. What do you mean, of course? Yes. After she met him, he was like trying to get clean. He knew she was his. He wanted to be in okay. her life. He was giving her stuffed animals. Okay, so he already knew at this at way before this. Yeah, and then she like and, wrote but, in her diary, "I think Stephen's my father." And then at like eleven or twelve yeah. or something. Yeah. Okay, so everyone knows. Yeah. And they're still just like, "This is fine." Yeah. Okay. Can we talk just for one second about the misogyny of this video? Sure. And like the misogyny that we're playing into. So like it's worse that he's sexualizing his daughter because people shouldn't sexualize their daughters. Right? No teenage girls. So this is the thing. So this is, this is, this is the point that I'm bringing up is like, I think women should be liberated from their fathers being like, I can't see you as a sexual person. Cause it's like, guess what? I fucking am. So fuck right. off. Right, right, right. So the it's problem the is that they're underaged. Mm hmm. So, so, I'm I'm asking a real question. Is the fact that I think he, him sexualizing his own daughter is that me like my internalized misogyny at work? I just think it's creepy because it's like your family. Like, don't fucking look at your kid like that. Also, don't look at any 16 year old girl like that. But like, right, like don't, don't your sell like your that. daughter into slavery, but also don't sell any sell daughters into, into slavery, slavery. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, like, i like, truly cannot decide which is like worse in my in my brain they're like uh, it's like a it's like a loop that's gonna cause <laughs> smoke to come out of my ears yeah i mean it's fucking weird it's it's weird it's a bad look dude you're on thin ice steven yeah
Yeah, well, you know, it's like Trump. He would just be like probably dating his daughter if he was oh, his daughter. Trump definitely <laughs> wants to fuck Ivanka like way more than Steven wants to fuck Liv. So on that note, we're going to go out today on um, with Steven Tyler on The Late Show with James Corden playing Spill Your Guts or Fill Your Guts. Are you familiar okay, with the show? This, no, I'm I'm familiar with the show and James Corden being not super funny, but I don't know what Fill Your Guts or Spill Your Guts is. Okay, great. at the food that we've got right here we have oh no uh we have cow intestines not good we've got hot sauce that's fine we have bull penis oh no penis penis. pig head jelly jelly. apparently which is also known as head cheese cheese. we have vienna sausage juice whatever dried caterpillars i absolutely not lamb tongue have had and a sardine smoothie Mm. okay so steven you're gonna go first i'm gonna give you the so he gives him a food and then he asks him a question and you have to either spill your guts and answer the question honestly or eat the thing Okay, and Stephen Stephen brings his own knife and fork to the table. Here we go. All right, Stephen, I am going to give you some dried dried caterpillars. Gross. Okay. Just lift one out of there so we can see what we're actually dealing with. Uh, He does not seem phased. He's not. (laughs) All right, Stephen, here we go. (laughs) This is May 2018. This is ridiculous. Stephen, your daughter Liv is a movie star. Have you ever hit on one of her movie star friends? Oh, no. If so, who? (laughs) So he's just, oh, he dropped it. Yes, I have. Wow. Stephen, no. This doesn't make you cool, dude. Okay. For it too. Go on. All right, so I was at um, Don't. Uh, uh, Stella McCartney's party. She invited us to, and of course I went with Liv, and it was in England, I believe. Right. So we left, and we all jumped in a van. And who would be sitting to my right? Cameron Diaz. Okay, not what I was expecting. So I look at this beautiful woman. I said, Cameron, should you ever? <laughs> need someone to take you to the movies or you know like if i was to ask you to show me around london and of course live went daddy you're hitting on my best girlfriend and you know i got ashamed for a moment but then that's just kind of just so. and that's it oh that's once it. again at, at least he didn't say alicia <laughs> so yeah where can people find us on the internet find us on the internet at lyrics for lunch on instagram and twitter and for longer and weirder stuff you can hit us up at lyrics for lunch at gmail.com send us a like and subscribe yeah rate review like subscribe it's the best way to never miss an episode and tune in next week when we're going to get to a listener suggestion i think uh which is the classic uh standard you are my sunshine you are my sunshine. Oh, thank you. Right. You make me happy on Saturday. Uh, <laughs> so until next time, I'm a V. Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. 
saying don't sexualize teenage girls Please. especially your daughter but any daughter general, also anyone's daughter don't write a but song called daughters either looking at you john mayer